Some of this history makes for uncomfortable listening. What you're about to listen to comes from a different time and world. In the words of the late Ngāti Toa Aura, Uncle Iwi Nicholson, Nā, ko te ao Māori tērā. Tā rātou mahi, he patu tangata, kai tangata, muru taonga, muru whenua, ko te ao Māori tēnā, me o tikanga. Well, that's the traditional Māori world. What they did was kill people, eat people, forcibly take possessions and land, even though it's unpleasant. That's the traditional Māori world and its customs. Located about five kilometres offshore from Paraparaumu, Kapiti Island is one of the jewels in the crown of the conservation estate. Here waves lap at a stony shore, while native bush climbs and clambers to the top of Tūtere Moana. There are hardly any people around. Instead, birds rule. When Pākehā first came to Aotearoa, they described the dawn chorus of our native birds as deafening. The tuneful tones of the kōmako and the kōkō, bellbird and tui, the tiiki with its maniacal laugh and hee-hee's call like two metallic stones hitting together. The chirps and whistles of piwai waka and riroriro and the intermittent prehistoric screams of kaka and kārearea. Joseph Banks called it the most melodious wild music I have ever heard. But over time, forests became farmland, predators were let loose, and our dawn chorus grew quieter, even here in Kapiti. It's taken decades of effort by conservationists and tangata whenua to restore the island to where it is now, for the bush to grow above head height, for the birds to return home. It's hard to imagine it as the hive of activity that it became when Ngāti Tōa and all their allies lived here. The landscape would have been different, for sure. This is John Barrett. His whānau have been keeping the ahikar on Kapiti Island since their ancestor Tarangi Hiroa, Tepehi's younger brother, arrived with Taraupara in the 1820s. They look after a small landholding at the northern end of the island, with about 10 batches on it. The rest of the island is managed by the Department of Conservation as a nature reserve. The Barrett whānau run Kapiti Nature Tours, bringing local and international tourists over to the island by boat for day trips and overnight stays. They also work on pest control and bush regeneration. As well as the environment, the Barretts are dedicated to preserving and sharing their whakapapa, which is intrinsically tied to this place. If the events hadn't taken place here in 1824 or 25, things would have been different. You know, Ngāti Tō might have disappeared as an iwi. He's talking about a battle that took place right where we're speaking, at Waiorua. It's a stony bay at the island's northernmost tip, and that battle cemented Ngāti Tō's occupation of Kapiti Island. So if you can imagine Waka from here, that point to here, 
that's pretty much what they were talking about, you know. Uh, Walker just covered the bay. In his account of his father's life, Tommy Hunter says that this battle involved around 3,000 enemy warriors travelling by Walker to attack the 200 Ngāti Tor on the island. Those numbers will put Ngāti Tor as outnumbered 15 to 1. Yeah, we're great storytellers, Ngāti Tor, you know. It's, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I really wish I was here. I, I wish I had been here. Maybe Tommy Hunter inflated enemy numbers to make their victories sound more impressive. Even so, nearly all accounts talk about at least a thousand in the attacking army, so the odds were definitely stacked against them. So significant as Hingikaka was it in the north, you know? So, and it is, it's very, very significant. We're going to look at this battle in more detail soon, from more than just the Ngati Tor perspective. We'll learn how Ngati Tor became established at the bottom of the North Island, attracting allies to strengthen their forces and allowing them to expand into Tatau Ihu, the top of the South Island. I'm Ross Kalman, and this is Te Rauparaha, Kei Wari Wari, Episode 3, Kāpiti. At the end of the last episode, Taroparaha was waging war against Moaupoko. He was seeking utu for the killing of his whānau at Lake Papaitonga, including three of his children. After the initial battles, most of Ngāti Tō's Taranaki allies return home. This leaves Ngāti Tō open to counter-attacks from Moaupoko and their Rangitāne Ngāsiapa allies. Ngāti Tō need time to regroup. It's from this place of uncertainty that their sights turn to Kapiti Island. Standing on the shores of the island, it's easy to see what my ancestors saw in this place. There would have been plenty of game birds to eat, there were eels in the streams, and it's still a good fishing spot. There's several freshwater sources coming down off the Maunga to Tere Moana. Plus, it was a good place to keep watch on the whole coast. So, from a high level, yep, strategically a good spot. They would have been alert for everything. So if something wasn't as it was yesterday, they'd, they'd notice it. But there were also some disadvantages to being based here. Ngāti Tōa was still reliant on trips to the mainland to dig fern root and gather kaimoana. Mussels are hard to get here. Mussels were easy to get at Kapu Kapu Araki, things like it. So, uh, you know, they went to different places for different kai. Yeah, yeah. And it was during one of these food-gathering trips, in probably the same year that Taroparaha's children were killed, that Ngāti Tor suffered another devastating loss. The attack took place at Waimeha, near Waikanae, at the hands of Rangitāne ki Wararapa, and possibly Muaupoko too. 
There are reports that around 20 people were killed. Here's Machi Baker. So it's hard to know exactly how this battle unfolded, but they were descended upon, numbers of them were killed, they were certainly overwhelmed, and a few of Tepehi's children were killed. Remember, Tepehi was the highest born of all the Ngāti Tor chiefs. In fact, it would appear that they were eventually killed in front of him. There is a description that the children were brought out in front of Tepehi and um, their eyes were pulled from their head and they were put to death. His brother's wife was killed, Tarangihiro's wife, Pohi, was um, taken to a nearby river, held down, her head was cut off. So it was a really brutal affair. So now Teraupraha and Tepehi have both had their children killed right in front of them. This drives them both to go to extraordinary lengths to seek Utu. But they'll go about it in different ways. Taraupiraha settles in on Kapiti for the long haul, while Tepehi has other plans. In February 1824, less than a year into Ngāti Tor's time on Kapiti Island, a large sailing ship stalls near the island due to a lack of wind. Fires are lit by Ngāti Tor to try to attract the ship to shore, but the ship maintains its course. He māri no noiho, iti iti nei te hau, e papa noiho ana ngā rā o te kaipuke. Tahu noa ki te ahi, ki hai i peke mai ki uta te kaipuke. So to be he rallies some warriors, they jump into a waka and head out to the ship. No te hapaenga a te ngaru i te waka. According to Tamihana, the Pākehā tried to shoo the people in the waka away, but the pier he won't be deterred. Katahi karaya tare watia atu e te pehi irunga ite waka. He gets the crew of his waka to paddle close to the ship, and when a wave rises up to propel the canoe closer, Tepehi makes a great leap from the waka onto the ship. They tried to expel him off the boat, but they couldn't. He was actually too strong. He'd grabbed the gunwales and um, all those big round metal rings that are on the gunwales and several sailors tried to grab him, throw him overboard so that they could just eject him and, and move on. He was so strong, they couldn't actually break his grip. The wind changed and the captain gave the order to go anyway. If the captain thought this would get rid of Tepehi, he was wrong. This was actually the Ariki's plan all along. He had enough poor English to express England and King George. And that's where he wanted to go. You have to wonder what was going through to bear his mind as he held onto the ship, sailing away from Kapiti. Did he know how long the journey would be? How long he'd be away from his people? Would he ever see his homeland again? I mean, he was absolutely bereft. He was motivated by the recent death of his children to go to England to get um, modern armaments and seek revenge. Tepehi heads off to England seeking guns for revenge. And for a time, Taraupiraha and Ngāti Tor managed to hold tight at Kapiti Island. But by late 1825, early 1826, about a year after Tepehi's departure, a huge allied army begins assembling on the mainland. This army is made up of warriors from the Haurohe, including Te Tau Ihu, 
rangitane, muaupoko, ngasiapa, and other iwi. We'll use kurahopo as shorthand for this side, and they want Kapiti Island back. As with many events from this time, there are different takes on what happens next. We can't really know the size of the army gathered on the mainland. It might have been 1,000, or it might have been three times that. And there's a bit of confusion as to when and how the Ngāti Tōra and Kapiti realised that an enemy army was massing on the mainland. But we'll share a couple of versions now. One starts with a wahine tour named Kahe Tarau o Terangi. Kahe had arrived on Kapiti with Taraupara's heke, probably as a teenager. In 1935, James Cowan described her as a woman well fitted to mother warriors. She excelled in swimming and diving. No one in Kapiti, man or woman, was a more strenuous and successful diver for shellfish. No one could swim with a bigger basket load or remain underwater longer. And in every swimming race, she defeated all her rivals. Some say it was from Kahe that Ngāsi Tor first learned about the mainland army. There was a message that Kahe got that an attack was imminent. Who knows why it was Kahe who got this message, but she certainly knew what to do. Kapiti was about to be attacked, and Kahe knew that not all of Ngāti Tor's warriors were on the island. Some of her whānau had gone to the mainland to collect mussels, and so she set out to tell them of the impending attack. The story is that she swam with the baby on, on her back. From Kapiti Island to Kapu Kapu Ariki, near where Paikakariki is now, a distance of about 11 kilometres through deep tidal water. Don't ask me why. Baby went, but I guess if she was the mother, take baby. Anyway, she went. That account from 1935 tells of Kahi being slathered up with the oil and kōkō wire to keep her warm, and having a rope or raft attached to her shoulders for the pēpi. And so, I mean, the story is, is there's a bit of far-fetchedness about, about it. But also, she couldn't have taken a waka. The kūrahopo warriors would have seen it. They'd have known it was someone going to get help. So she swims, singing ori-ori to pēpi to keep her calm. She was lauded for that and she was memorialised for that swim to go and get the whānau and they came back and took part in the, in the battle that took place here. It's a beautiful story and it may well have happened, but it doesn't make it into Tummy Hunter's narrative. In his telling, Taraupara was oblivious to the gathering Opitoa on the shores of Waikanae. He hadn't seen their cooking fires, didn't sense their presence, hadn't received any message. To me, this whole section of Tommy Hunter's manuscript reads like a campfire story that he's heard his father tell many, many times. The details becoming more and more exaggerated. He writes that it's a beautiful night, calm and still, when some of the invading force land at Waiorua. In the pa, all 60 of Taraupara's people are fast asleep, noses snoring and eyes closed. But Taraupara wakes up twitching, sensing that this is an omen. He wakes the others in the whare to tell them. By this point, the scouting party are crouched outside, and they overhear Taraupara addressing those inside the house. Certain that they've confirmed his location, they return to where the rest of the army are gathered to let them know. 
Farenui na? Is it a farenui? Ai, e whakairu a waho te whatituka. Ai. Yes, there are carvings around the doorway. We are tēna no taua ngarara whakamataku nei taua whare. No doubt this is the house of the horrible monster. Ko te waiwairapa nā tēna? Has he got webbed feet? We are no he waiwairapa. Ai. He has webbed feet with six toes on each. E ona ngā maikuku o ona waiwai. The army agrees. When we catch him, we should cut off the soles of his feet to make into ear pendants. <laughs> Meanwhile, Taroparaha has fallen back to sleep. He dreams of a black hawk swooping down, talons close to his face, narrowly missing his eye. He snatches the bird and snaps its neck. Ka whatia e ia te kaki, ka mate te manura. Unable to ignore his dream, Taroparaha wakes up his people again to tell them, Should an enemy army come here tonight to attack us, chances are we'll win. With no hint of an enemy army on the horizon, his people are bemused. Children laugh and whisper that the old man is deluded. But of course, the enemy army is real. When the attackers finally arrive, just before dawn, Taroparaha is asleep again. Then a kuya goes out for a morning paru. She sees enemy warriors waiting for reinforcement and sneaks back to alert the rest of the people in the whare. It is the enemy, Raha. Stir yourself. At this, he springs up, calling out to the whanau. Let us exact a heavy price. Be bold. Be brave. Everyone seems to have an opinion on how this battle went down. It's impossible now to know what actually happened. But somehow, the huge attacking army fails to take Kapiti. How is that possible? The weather turned against them mid-crossing. Here's Machu Baker again. And by the time they arrived at Waiorua, the weather was against them, the tide was against them. They were now trying to um, disembark and storm a steep, stony beach and couldn't get purchase. John Barrett doesn't buy the theory that the weather turned. It's trying to bring a bit of logic to it. John has lived on and around Kavati long enough to know you can see that kind of weather coming. The Kurahopo Taua had generations of experience to draw upon. They knew the weather and the beaches. There would have been Tohunga who, would, who knew how to read the weather mm. and they would, have, they would have picked the right time to do it. I would have been astonished if they'd chosen a rough night to do it. Also, Taroparaha didn't live at Waiorua, but further down the island. Taroparaha was down at Rangatira Point. This is Takuparai. He would have rode up. They needed the numbers. Get on those rockers and get the hell out there. And because in this telling, Kurahopo was stuck out in the water, unable to land because of the weather, this gave Ngati Tor an advantage. If we let those type of numbers get on there, if we go out onto the water and fight them on the water, because those big wakatoa don't have the agility, as their little ones did, we tip them out and drown them and fight for our lives. And so that's what happened. They went out onto the water and fought like damn crazy. And um, the few Ngāti Tōa that were there just rained stones down on them and, and stoned as many of them to death as they could and then engaged them and, and ended the rest of them and captured the remnant that they could get their hands on. The odds were wildly against them. 
According to sources, Mangal, Masi Tor's kaitiaki, the shark, smelled the blood in the water, and anyone still left out there in the water was eaten. Koiwi, human bones, washed up on the shores of Kapiti for decades. That was really the, the last and final combined threat to Rātitōr being here. That was the battle that actually drove our Pauwhenua into the area here, and then it was known then throughout Aotearoa that, that Raha had taken the bottom of the North Island. Meanwhile, across the other side of the world, Tepehi makes it to England. His ship docks in England in February 1825, after a voyage of close to a year. And surprisingly, in the time it's taken to travel across the world, Tepehi and Captain Reynolds have become friends. It's such an unlikely buddy story that would have had to overcome language and cultural barriers. It started with a splash off the coast of South America, near Uruguay's capital, Montevideo, when Tepehi saved Reynolds' life. They were coming into port and the captain had fallen overboard. And um, as is often said, 19th century sailors weren't always great swimmers. Um, but Māori were fantastic swimmers. And um, Tepehi just jumped in and swam out, saved him, brought him back to ship and, um, and saved his life. But I think what's so wonderful about that is they, they formed a really authentic bond, a true friendship. After docking at Liverpool, Tepehi is invited to live with Captain Reynolds and his family. Like every other Māori that went to England in that era, he gets sick, most likely with measles. For a while, it looks like he might die. He was deathly ill. I think there were grave concerns that he wasn't going to survive. And there was a really high-level concern about that. It would have been an awful outcome for everyone, including the government. The British government knew that Tepehi was in England and were keen to make sure he went home safely. They were worried his death could damage trading relationships with Māori. The fallout of that would find its way to every whaler, every sea captain, every ship that turned up would be held accountable if something should go terribly wrong. And that was something they wanted to really avoid at all costs. So the government paid for Tepehi's upkeep. When he was sick, Tepehi was tended by a local doctor named Dr Trail, who kept records of their interactions. And Dr Trail described how Tepehi would often sit inside the house and play with Captain Reynolds' children, and it would just evoke really powerful emotions. And then through what communication he had available to him, he would describe to them how his own children had been killed, and the manner in which they'd been killed, and how much it hurt and upset him and how much joy it brought him to play with the young children of Captain Reynolds, who would laugh and play with them. And, and so you have this wonderful picture, nuanced picture of a really complex person, someone who was the tribal leader of his generation, who had fantastic capacity for love, who had wonderful empathy, who were just as comfortable playing and laughing with children as they were preparing for battle and probably preparing gardens and doing all the other domestic duties. So Aharangatera were really, really complete, whole, holistic 
human beings. There's a few stories about what De Beer he got up to in England once he'd recovered. There's debate about whether he met the king or not. To my knowledge, he never left Liverpool, although he, he had the most wonderful experience. He certainly made an impact while he was there. Yeah, he was a minor celebrity in every sense of the word. I mean, he was at formal dinners, he was entertained by local lords. They were all curious to learn about him. He would have looked so impressive and unusual on the streets of Liverpool. In a watercolour portrait of him from the time, to pair he looks every inch the ariki in a black suit and white linen neckcloth with a full resplendent moko. Absolutely fabulous moko. Probably the best tattoo the rangatira of Ngāti Tōra of his generation. Because the, the mana of the people, he held the mana for the collective that was invested in his person. And that was represented in his moko. No dōna o ranga ake i te mate. Ka ki mai ngā pākea o rewapuru. Te taone nui e tūai ngā kaipuke. Tamihana says that the Pākehā of Liverpool wanted Te Pēhi to demonstrate its customs. But the ship's captain was not interested in putting Tepehi on display in a tacky money-making venture. Matthew tells one other story about Tepehi's time in Liverpool, which paints a vivid and funny picture. As he was walking through the streets of Liverpool, there were fruit sellers and they would be offering their goods for sale and he would be casually walking and taking fruit from their baskets as he was striding through the streets of Liverpool thinking, what a wonderful and kind people (laughs) as he had been consuming and taking these wonderful things. Behind them, there's a small retinue of people desperately running around paying these people for their goods and services. To be, he was completely unaware of this, of course, <laughs> and thought it was all just the goodwill of the people. And he was an ariki, so he was used to being treated in that way. That was commensurate with his rank and station in life. It was part of his expectation, but um, yeah, it's quite a funny scene when you think about it. Eventually, after eight months in England, Tepehi set sail home again. Tepehi didn't manage to get any guns while he was in England. According to Tamihana's manuscript, the leaders of England were cautious after what happened with Hongi Hika, who got his hands on muskets while in England and used them to wreak havoc on a number of iwi in the Bay of Plenty. But some say Tepehi took the gifts he was given in England and traded them for guns and ammunition in Sydney on his way back to Kapiti. After the battle at Wairorua, Taropraha begins to consolidate his position. The Kurahopo army have left behind quite a few Wakatawa after their defeat. They'll come in handy. More and more Pākehā ships start to call in at Kapiti, and Taropraha starts to trade with them. Flax for muskets. And word of his success starts to travel up the country to his whanaunga, his allies. And they start to follow his lead and migrate south. 
Ngāti Mūtanga, Ngāti Tama and Teatiawa, northern Taranaki iwi, all turn up. Even Ngāti Raukawa, his mother's people, come down eventually. They're the ones that laughed at Raha for his lowly status when he first approached them. And as they all arrive, Tamihana says they weep together for those who have passed away. They're treated to Taraupiraha's famous manakitanga, with feasts including familiar kai, fish, kumara, preserved birds, eel, fern root, as well as new treats from the Pākehā ships, like biscuits and sugar. Tamihana talks about a food platform for one particular hākari, like a stage to hold all the kai. O tira, katahi nei anō ka mōhiotia, ko ngā tūripona o kāpiti o te tihi o manono. He kai whakataitai nā te rauparaha ki a Ngāti Raukawa. It was a competitive gifting of food from te rauparaha to Ngāti Raukawa, so that Ngāti Raukawa would not be able to match it with a comparable feast for te rauparaha, so that it would be the last word in feasts and never be reciprocated. Kei ia mai a muriake nei. Koi anō ki hai i ia mai. It was never matched. Surrounded by allies, his position secure, Taroparaha assesses his situation and looks to the future. Okay, well, look, well let's head back down that way. I, I love coming to this place. It's, uh, it's a yeah. stunning spot, yeah, absolutely yeah, stunning. Yeah. You know, you can see the human history. Absolutely, yeah. But sort of yeah. nature's taking over, yeah. but it's sort of, yeah. yeah, it's just beautiful. Yeah. We're back with John Barrett, who's showing us some of the old whaling spots around the island. It's said that in the time before whalers arrived, it was common to hear the whales singing to each other from right here at this spot. I believe it. I mean, you, you can hear them now sometimes, you know, on a, on a still night. You can, you know, I've, I've heard whales on a still night here. In the next episode, we're heading south for an important chapter of Taroparaha's life. But before we do that, we need to talk about how sensitive some of these subjects still are today, and why we need to be careful how it's important to honour our history and learn from it. You know, it wasn't so long ago that some of our people had no possibility of reconciliation with either Kurahopo or Naitahu, and I'm just talking about, you know, 20, 30 years ago. One of the old Ngāti Tōkwea, Auntie Ruta, almost made me swear, look, don't you ever forget about what happened at Papai Tonga or Korofendua, don't you ever forget about, don't you mean she stamped her feet? No, auntie, I won't. <laughs> I won't. Yeah, so, and that was only, we're talking about the 1990s. She was an old queer, but, you know, it was absolutely firm in her thinking. You know, don't, don't you ever let that go. What do you think that's about, though? Uh, it's about mana, I think. I think it's about mana. There's still a lot of hurt that can come with discussing battles that took place 200 years ago. That's not a lot of time in Te Ao Māori. And descendants on both sides are bearing the burden. There's guilt attached to being on the victorious side and killing other people's ancestors. And there's hurt that comes from thinking about battles where your own ancestors were killed. And we get tangible examples of that when people withdraw from visits here, for example. You know, we've had different rōpū from Rangitāne and um, other, and Kurahopō Waka. Uh, and you see the list of people who are coming and and on sailing day, you know, there's four or five people missing and you know they won't come. 
Remember, the Barrett Whanau bring people to Kapiti nowadays for nature tours. Oh. Yeah. So they've signed up and then yep. withdrawn. Yep. And what do you put that down to? I just just um, hurt that's still there for, for those people. And they're people who are generally older people. So when it just came down to it, they just couldn't do it? Yeah. They couldn't, couldn't get on the boat? Yeah, and I, I see it yeah. not routinely, but you know, regular enough to, to, to raise it as a, mm. as a point. You know. John Barrett says Manuhiri to the Motu often want to talk about the battle at Waiorua, that cemented Ngāti Tōa's position here. But he's always aware of who he's speaking to. If I'm talking to a group who want to know about what happened, I, I try and survey who's who I'm talking to. <laughs> Wise move. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, because it's quite sensitive, you yeah, know, yeah, and, it, yeah. and it needs to be talked about with a bit of mana attached mm, to mm, to both yeah. parties, really, mm. I, I guess, is, a, is where you want to end up. Mm. You've got to get these things in context and you've got to get, you know, you've got to have them in a place that isn't going to constantly be upsetting you or upsetting the way you live or think. You wouldn't want to forget it or let it go altogether. You want to be able to raise it in a, an environment where you understand the time that they were in. That, that's how they live. That's how they live. It's just a matter of being careful at the right moments. This is Tamari Tau, a Ngaitahu historian who we're going to hear from in the next episode. In the English world, sticks and stones break my whatever it is. Um, in our world, words do matter. It's an oral society. Those things matter. Words do matter. They're a matter of mana. Kia pēnā tāna upoko tō te rauparaha. Tukituki aiho ki taku tukituki patu aruhe. What you just heard is a curse made by Rangitani Rangasira, Te Rua One. Let Te Rauparaha's head be pulverised by my fernroot pounder. This insult will lead Ngāti Tō to head to Te Ihu to attack Rangitani. And another insult will be the beginning of ten years of conflict between Ngāti Tō and Ngaitahu. The reason why you study history is to learn lessons from the past. And one of them is keep your opinions to yourself. You don't have to say you're going to beat someone's head with a fernroot pounder, or you don't have to say you're going to rip their stomach open with a barracuda tooth. But all those kanga and curses, you know, in those days, if you say something, it really did mean this is going to happen. So you have to react to it. In the next episode of Taroparaha Kei Wari Wari, Te Waipaunamu. Automatically, people are going to be on edge. I don't want my soul to go to the heavens. I want it to go and rest with my old people at the Kaukaputa. He'd lost a big chunk of his leaders. The Elizabeth was our Trojan horse. That history is painful for us to recount now. This series was made possible with funding from Manutu Taonga, Ministry for Culture and Heritage. It was researched, co-written and hosted by me, Ross Kalman. Kirsten Johnstone from Popsock Media produced, edited and sound designed the series. Music is by Mukultron, Ariana Tikau, Alistair Fraser and Phil Boniface. Tor Waka is the voice of Tamihana. Melody Thomas of Popsock Media was our script advisor. Imogene Kelly from Manitou Taonga provided production support and historical checks. 
I'm grateful to all of our kaikōrero who have so generously shared their knowledge, their wisdom and their compassion. Tēnei te mihi aroha kia koutou katoa. Podua te pau, tukituki o te pau, whakarohi o ngā pekerangi, ngā tūkupu, ngā tokoru, o tēnei tangata, o tēnei pūrākau, o enei tūpuna. Ki ui a winiwini, ki ui a wanawana, hare atu te haukino, te hauhuna, te haukaitaua. He toka tumoana, haramai te toki, haumie, huie, tāhi ki e.